This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I've been looking forward to this show today. Um, We have two guests who are going to be calling in. Dr. Matthew Tremblay is going to be calling in. Dr. Tremblay has been a guest on our show before, but I wanted to get him back on because in the past two weeks, uh, we've had a big change in the field of MS. He's a multiple sclerosis specialist and runs a program at the University of Connecticut in the Department of Neurology. And there's a new drug on the market. It's a monoclonal antibody that even among neurologists, appears to be a real game changer for people with multiple sclerosis. So I wanted to get him on to talk a little bit about this new drug, how available is it, how it's administered, and things like that. So he'll be on uh, at 11.15. And then in the second half of the show, uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is organ donation. Uh, Ms. Caitlin Bernabucci is going to be on from Life Choice. Now, Life Choice is our regional organ donation coordinator or organization. And they're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the field of organ donation. I've always been impressed that Connecticut has been one of the leaders in organ donation and people who sign up. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because this month is Organ Donation Awareness Month and they have a uh, run or walk, run walk going on uh, to raise awareness for that. So we're going to be talking with her in the second half of the show. I'm getting ready today. I'm after the show. I'm leaving to go to Boston for the meeting of the American Academy of Neurology. Uh, this is the meeting where all neurologists worldwide get together. This particular meeting, there are thirteen thousand registrants. Uh, we have about twenty thousand members uh, for the American Academy of Neurology. So. Uh, I'd love to get up there because I get new ideas, find out new things, and get to share them with you. So it's always uh, in, impressive to be up there and be around really bright young people. Uh, and I stress young because that's really the future of science. This day in medicine, April twenty second, 1607, Dr. Girolamo Rossi died. Uh, Dr. Rossi was an Italian professor. He was a physician and an anatomist. And the reason I mention this one is because we talked last week about Leonardo da Vinci uh, and his drawings and how these really led. These were the first anatomists. So the artists were really our first anatomists and their detail to the human body. And Dr. Rossi did many paintings and engravings at that time in medical books and created our first medical book. So it's really interesting how that all comes together. One of the things that is going to be a hot topic at the American Academy of Neurology is telemedicine or teleneurology. And again, this is where we're trying to deliver care remotely 
the people who are in a situation where they won't have immediate access to a physician. I mean it started out on Indian reservations and remote areas in the military, but now it's really grown uh, in the sense – and we're working on a project at the University of Connecticut in our sports medicine section so that if an athlete is injured, we can by way of telemedicine dial right into – visually dial right into the training room and assist – the athletic trainer or other medical personnel by giving an opinion. For me, especially with the area of concussion. Can an athlete go back? What should they do? So again, I now have a visual image as well as being able to chat with the people who are providing care at the scene. So uh, I'm going to report back a little bit more about that, and that project is ongoing. One of the biggest problems with the project is not so much the technology. It's there. It's the regulatory issues. I mean, this is... America. So we have IPA, FIPA. They they have a lot of different levels of compliance that you need to meet. So if people are thinking, wow, how can you do that technologically, uh, just ask the computer guys, uh, the tab guys. It's easy. Uh, But we have a lot of regulatory stuff to get over. But we're going to have that soon. Yesterday, I chatted on the air with Ray Dunaway about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which has come to light again with the death of Aaron Hernandez. And naturally his his family were generous and donated his brain to the people at Boston University to see if there is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. This is brain damage that we believe is the result of repeated head trauma. And the brain damage can only be diagnosed upon death. Basically, they take the brain out of the skull and slice it up and use certain stains to look for a protein called tau protein. And if that protein, which is present in everybody after you die, but in a, if it is present in a particular distribution and a particular amount, they conclude that it's CTE, and that is what they're talking about. Typically, these patients, when they're alive, when you look back after they've passed on, Uh, They've had movement disorders like Parkinsonism. They've had behavioral problems um, and a variety of other cognitive difficulties. What we need to be cautious about is to start placing blame for everything on a medical condition. Just from the standpoint that what happened here was a tragedy at multiple levels. But is it because of playing football? Is it because of a single medical condition that that did this? Should no one play football because of that? Obviously not. So I think that even if this is positive finding, although it may give some solace to his family, I don't think that we can conclude that all of his behavior is related to that. Because we've seen many football players who have been hit in the head go on to have very successful lives after their sport. Not everyone has become a criminal. So again, we need to take that all with a grain of salt as the results become available. But again, it's generous of them to make that donation. Another thing that was in the news this week is the idea of geriatric home visits. I read an article where a physician in Southeast Connecticut, Dr. Feltes, has now joined this movement of instead of the elderly having to go to the doctor's office, 
he'll make house calls. And for doing that, you become a member of a practice. Uh, several years ago, we had Dr. Joseph Bada on. Dr. Bada really spearheaded this here in Connecticut. He's in Putnam, and he would charge a, a modest amount, really. I think it was like $83 a month to be a member of his practice. And in return, you got his cell number. You had access to him. Uh, he would see you if you were in a nursing home or you had to go to the hospital. He would not meet you in the emergency room, and that would be impossible to provide that level of care. But uh, with that, more and more people are signing on to this. So basically, for the price of joining a golf club, you now have a personal physician at your disposal to come to your home so you're not sitting in a waiting room, uh, not rushed. And, and they do bill Medicare. They will still bill your insurance. But you have, you're paying for that access. It's great. I mean, that that is clearly the way to go. But that's not going to be there for everybody. That's not going to be the standard of care that everybody should get that now. So again, as much as we want to say we're going to go to a socialized system, I can guarantee you it's going to become less socialized in the sense that people who can afford a certain level of care are going to buy it and receive it. And that's the way this system works. That's the way it was created. And quite honestly, I see this as an improvement to the system, as do many of the patients who were involved in it. And, you know, it's really a modest amount that they're charging. We've heard of these other places that are charging thousands and thousands of dollars to do it. Uh, both of these physicians are really doing it for modest amounts of money. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Matthew Tremblay. Dr. Tremblay is a neurologist. He is also the director of the demyelinating diseases, including MS uh, Clinic at the University of Connecticut. And we're going to be talking to him about a new drug that's soon to be available to everyone. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Welcome back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, the telephone numbers here in the studio are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. If you don't want to come on the air and you want to send me a question, you can go to info at alessimd.com. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Matthew Tremblay. Dr. Tremblay is a neurologist. And he is a multiple sclerosis specialist at the University of Connecticut. And we wanted to get him back on to talk about a new drug that's available and probably going to be a real game changer for treating patients with multiple sclerosis. Matt, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Matt, let's talk a little bit about this. If, if you could just give everybody an overview of what multiple sclerosis is, um, it would be a great way to start. Sure. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease that attacks the myelin coating around the axons in the brain and the spinal cord and can result in symptoms that include loss of vision in one or both eyes, weakness in the extremities, loss of sensation in the arms or legs. And over time, after multiple attacks of these things happening, some of those symptoms can become permanent. And a small subset of patients with multiple sclerosis they accumulate symptoms without having had a sudden attack of any of them, and those are probably the hardest to diagnose and treat amongst our patients with MS. Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember in 1993 when we first started using beta-seron, 
for the treatment using interferon. And now we're using monoclonal antibodies. Well, what makes this new drug, ocrelizumab, the, another game changer? Or is it? So there are a few things about ocrelizumab that make it um, very desirable from both a physician and a patient perspective. So one of the most important things to recognize about ocrelizumab is it's the first treatment that's been approved by the FDA for the treatment of primary progressive multiple sclerosis. So the patients who have developed some physical disability gradually without having had an attack, previously there were no treatments available that showed any evidence of decreasing the rate of their disability. And in the Oratorio study that was done to evaluate ocrelizumab, what they found was a slowing of the rate of disability, the rate at which people had worsening of their walking while on ocrelizumab therapy. Uh, so it's the first, the first drug in its class that's been approved for the treatment of primary progressive MS, which I think the field views as a, a huge breakthrough. I do want to add the caveat that most of the benefit is seen in patients who are younger and still have inflammation on their MRI scans. But as I said, it is still the first drug approved for primary progressive MS. Uh, for the relapsing patients, there was a lot of evidence from the OPERA 1 and 2 trials that it's a very effective strategy for treating relapsing MS as well. And the comparison was actually, since you referenced beta serum, the comparison in the study was against Rebif, a similar medication to beta serum. And ocrelizumab was uh, decreased the relapse rate in patients from essentially 46 or 47% less than what was seen with Rebif, a longstanding historical medication that's been used for almost 20 years in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Uh, in terms of convenience, one of the other factors I think is important for patients is this is going to be an infused medication that's administered twice a year. So a lot of the older medications that have good safety profiles like beta serin, Rebif, and Copaxone are injected medications where patients are injecting themselves with the medication anywhere from once a week all the way up to every other day or in the old Copaxone dosing every single day. And this new medication, Aquilizumab, that's been approved will be a, an infusion that the patient goes to have for about six to eight hours, and they only have to go twice a year to get their treatment. Matt, how available is it going to be? Now, that's my next question. I mean, even when beta serum first came out, uh, even today with Rebif, when you use interferon, you have to meet so many criteria before an insurance company will pay for it because I'm just jumping to the conclusion that this is going to be an expensive therapy. Uh, I know that when we used Copaxone, it was about $10,000 a year. Uh, actually, it was for beta serum as well. So how accessible is this drug going to be? Good. That's a, a great question and an important question for us to deal with with a new medication. So you are absolutely correct that the price of multiple sclerosis medications has been very expensive historically and continues to escalate as time marches on. The typical cost of a multiple sclerosis medication right now, for the insurance company at least on paper, is about $70,000 per year. And that's true of almost every medication available for MS with some medications being a little bit more and some being a little bit less. Uh, interestingly, the company that manufactures Ocrelizumab has decided to price it at a price less than what is the going rate for the competitive medication in the trial, Rebif, which has been around for a long time and in the, 
the clinical trial was inferior to aquilizumab. The price on paper, according to the manufacturer, is going to be $65,000 per year, which sounds like an astounding number, but is actually on the lower end of the cost compared to the medications that it competes with in the market for multiple sclerosis. Uh, also, in the other question in terms of accessibility that I think is important to recognize, a lot of the medications that have become available for the first few years after they were approved by the FDA, the insurance companies would often require a patient be on a different medication, be intolerant to it, have an allergic reaction, or just fail it in the sense that they had worsening disease while on the previous medication. And the FDA sometimes includes language regarding that in the approval. So if you look at a couple of the other drugs in the market that were recently approved, like teclizumab or alemtuzumab, the FDA specifies that this should be a third-line therapy, not the first drug that you use. But acrolizumab, the FDA did not put any barriers between the patient and the medication. So if somebody were felt to be a good candidate for this medication, it would be potentially doable as a first-line therapy. We're starting to get information back from the insurance companies about what their policy is going to be, and there are a number of payers who are willing to allow patients to go on this as a first-line therapy, especially with primary progressive MS since it's the only approved therapy for that indication. So I think in terms of accessibility, this is going to be a little bit of a paradigm shift compared to some of the more recent approvals we've seen because manufacturers priced it lower and we're seeing that there is not going to be a, what we call step therapy with some of the payers as well. Matt, that, you you mentioned something important, and that is you know making it accessible. But I I have a different approach on this one. Now I lived through the natalizumab uh, debacle uh, when that came out, and no one was really that familiar with side effects. So my question is really twofold. One is one of our problems with natalizumab is everybody was giving it. Uh, the drug company was going out to physician offices saying, hey, you can make a lot of money, open an infusion center, and you could give natalizumab. And people were doing it because they were waving dollar signs. And then people started getting sick from the drug. Will, so my question is, will this drug be restricted to being administered by specialists like yourself? Because certainly if I were in that situation, I'd want to go to somebody if I were going to get this drug, to somebody who has special expertise. And the second part of that question is, what's the side effect profile for acrolizumab? Sure, great questions. So in terms of your first question regarding whether the medication will be restricted in terms of the prescribers, um, a number of medications in MS, as you described, have programs with the FDA referred to as REMS programs that essentially restrict who can give the medication so that people with expertise are the ones who are prescribing. In the case of acrolizumab, the FDA is not requiring a REMS program, so there is not a limit on who would be prescribing. I personally feel that if somebody is interested in starting that medication for their multiple sclerosis, they should be seeing a multiple sclerosis specialist who has some experience with this type of medication. In terms of the risks related to acrolizumab, one of the nice... Um, you know, one of the nice benefits with this medication is that it's essentially a new version of a medication that's been around for quite some time. So you're probably aware of a medication called rituximab, which also is a monoclonal antibody, binds to the CD20 molecule on the surface of B cells to take the B cells out of the circulation. 
So ocrelizumab is a more humanized version of that same monoclonal antibody. Uh, there was some hope that that would lead to a decreased rate of infusion reactions. It turns out that's not the case. The infusion reactions that patients experience are probably related to the actual destruction of the B cells in the blood. And so what the, the studies found is that about a third of patients will have some kind of a reaction during their infusion for the first time. Um, you know, typically they're going to be mild reactions. There might be some itching, some redness, and they can slow down the rate of the infusion or give some additional medications like Benadryl, antihistamines, steroids to limit the amount of reaction that happens. In more severe cases, the medication may have to be stopped and it may not be able to be continued as a therapy for the patient. In terms of other risks that we worry about, because it does weaken the immune system, we do worry about opportunistic infections. Um, in terms of the infection that was seen with natalizumab called PML or progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, uh, we do have a good sense of what the risk of PML would be with ocrelizumab because people have been using rituximab for quite a while, the previous generation molecule. And the risk is around 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 30,000 based sure. on what we know with so it's, pretty, so it's pretty slim. Hey, Matt, we're coming up on a hard stop. So okay. uh, what I want to do is get you back on in the future. We could talk a little bit about how this is moving along and how this program progresses. Um, thanks sure. so much. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you for having thanks. me. Bye-bye. We'll be back on Healthy Rounds after this break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi of Mohegan Sun. Gee, last night we had Bellator MMA. Tonight is Chris Rock, and that is going to be a huge show. So if you're in the area, get over to Mohegan Sun and enjoy uh, any of the multiple things going on there. Uh, While we were off the air, I had got several emails uh, where people would like the contact information for Dr. Tremblay. Uh, Dr. Tremblay, as I said, is a multiple sclerosis specialist at UConn. And he will have access to this new medication. His telephone number is 860-679-4888. That's 860-679-4888 in the Department of Neurology for Dr. Tremblay. Next up, we're chatting with Ms. Caitlin Bernabucci. Uh, Caitlin has been with Life Choice uh, for a very long time now, Caitlin, right? How long are you there? Um, it has been a while. It's been 11 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think many of the listeners to this show will know uh, how I feel about uh, organ donation. At the end of every show, we ask people to become an organ, eye, and tissue donor because it is such an important thing for us to do to help other people. Uh, it also helps our loved ones after our passing uh, from that standpoint. And Caitlin and the people at Life Choice have really led this effort here uh, throughout New England. Uh, Caitlin, what's going on? Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for all that awesome support. Um, you're totally right, Dr. Alessi. A donation is so important, and it's just really critical for people to think about it and just take a few minutes to talk to your loved ones and consider the options um, of becoming a donor. In Connecticut, we have about 46% of the licensed population that's registered to donate, 
which is okay, but it's really not great. I mean, you know, the need is high, and that um, that stat is even lower than the national average right now. It is. Nation. Yep, about 54%. I thought we were much better than the national yeah, average. Okay. Yeah, we are falling a little bit behind. So. Okay. And I'm not sure exactly what's going on. I think that we just need to continue the outreach and the education and continue to make people understand that it's something we need to think about, talk about, and ultimately register for. Well, you know, we're always seeing these heartwarming stories. Most recently, Rod Carew. Yeah. Rod Carew received a a heart and a kidney from another professional athlete. The first time, I believe, that's been documented uh, where an NFL player who had an aneurysm burst and sadly passed away at the young age of 29, was the organ donor for Rod Carew. And we see these stories and hear these stories, and, and you can't help be moved by that. Uh, and, and what moves me is how there's such a great sense of closure for your loved ones sure. uh, when you leave. Is that something that's... because? Previously, we didn't let people know who got the organs, who was the donor. Uh, that seems to have changed recently. Well, I, I have to say that I've um, been doing this work for 11 years. Uh, it is just amazing how generous people can be in a moment that, I mean, you'd think they'd want to be as selfish as possible and, and shut the world out. They're They're in a place where they want to help others and to make sure others aren't going to be put through the agony of loss like they have been. And they see that and they donate and they give to others in their darkest moment. So to me, it's just like the, it's a beautiful um, part of the human, human spirit. And it's really wonderful to see how families embrace donation. And when they talk with us and help to educate the community and talk about their experience, how donation really is, um, a, a part of their loved one's legacy and their final gift. And it, I think it does give families something very unique and special to, to hold on to, that their loved one has essentially given life to someone else um, in their death. So people really uh, are amazing. Uh, donor families do so much for others and, and, and help so many people. Caitlin, who signs up? Uh, is it mostly young people now? Is it mostly older people? Is there a particular demographic of people who sign up as opposed to those who don't sign up? So we see most um, mostly younger people. Um, there is a pretty steady decline in registration rates as people get older. There's also some, we look at uh, the the state by zip code. We have data that shows by zip code who's registered and who isn't. And we know that um, certain areas of the state, like um, Hartford surrounding areas, Bridgeport surrounding areas, and New Haven tend to register at lower rates. So with the age, the age issue, I think that there's a general feeling that, and this is a good thing, people are concerned that, hey, you know what, I'm getting a little bit older, maybe my organs aren't that healthy and they're not going to help someone, or I was recently diagnosed with diabetes or high blood pressure, so my organs are no good. I can't, I can't share those. But I would definitely tell people that not to rule yourself out sure. as a donor. Um, there's absolutely nothing that should stop anyone from joining the donor registry. That medical decision is made at the time of death, and there are actually very few things that automatically rule someone out um, from being able to give this awesome gift. So don't rule yourself out. 
Oh, uh, yeah. you know, I never, I never even thought of that. And I was uh, really, in following this train of thought, I was wondering why older people would not sign up. Is it, is it really an educational effort more than anything? Because it's one of those things where I don't see a downside. I mean, are people out there thinking that I'm taking my organs with me wherever I'm going? Is that, I, I you know, I just, I, I when I talk to people about this, I'm, I'm, tongue-tied here because I'm a little bit emotional about it. When I talk to people about this, it's it's more laziness that they didn't do it. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of in a tough spot, too. I mean, you're at the DMV is where most, most people sign up, and you want to get in and out of there. And uh, it's, it's a weird question to be asked at, at that time. And if you haven't given it a lot of thought before you get there, um, maybe you're like, oh, no, I'll do that later. Um, but I I got to say, the Connecticut DMV is amazing when it comes to the donor registry. They're so supportive. We just had um, April 21st was Blue and Green Day across the U.S., and our um, our local branches dressed up and decorated blue and green. So I think that it's just tough to make that decision on the spot. So it's so important for people to think about it um, beforehand. And, hey, if you're not for a license renewal for a while, then uh, – all the better reason to go online and register. We have a national registry now, so it's so easy. You just go right on to registerme.org, and you can sign up in minutes. So it's not donatelife.net anymore? Uh, that works, too. Okay. Lots of different ways to get there. But registerme.org will take you right to the site. And that I, I just want to stress that it's so important to consider this decision. You can save so many lives. Um, one person can help more than 75 people. And that, to me, is just, like you were saying, absolutely, why wouldn't you? It's an amazing gift that you can give to others. We're going to take a short break, and I want to get back to chat a little bit more with Caitlin about an upcoming event uh, for Life Choice and really the efforts here in New England to promote organ donation. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for this last segment. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're talking about organ donation with Caitlin Bernabucci from Life Choice. Caitlin, you you folks have been doing a lot, I mean, over the years in, in my time here in Connecticut about educating folks and really raising awareness about organ donation. What are some of the things going on now, some of your projects uh, in terms of getting more people to sign up and be a little more educated about the importance of organ donation? One of our main focuses is our partnership with the DMV and AAA. So 98% of people that do sign up do it right there um, at that state agency. So we need to make sure that the DMV has all the information that they need on the front line um, to help people make that decision. We make sure that the branches look good with posters and materials. So we work closely with them. We do a lot with the driving schools because these young drivers are going to be asked um, to make a decision if they want to be an organ and tissue donor. Um, so it's a big decision for a, a young 16- and 17-year-old to make to put on their license, but they tend to don't to, to sign up at very high rates, which is really wonderful, and um, it, it really makes an impact. So there we do a lot with high schools, colleges, and our volunteers are amazing. They go out to community events constantly, and they have those powerful um, personal stories of why donation matters, um, their donor families and transplant recipients. So we have a great network of them that are out there 
of on the road um, sharing the message. And then we have a big event coming up next weekend, um, April 29th. We have our fourth annual Blue and Green 5K, which has turned into um, a pretty great day for the Donate Life community. And it's a great day, too, for anyone who is kind of wondering whether or not they want to register or learn more about donation. Definitely come by and uh, meet some people who have truly been impacted by this gift. Where is that going to be held? It's going to be in Windsor, Connecticut. It's right off of Griffin Road. And there's a website that has all the details for registration. It's bluegreenwalk.org. But it's a, it is an amazing day. We had about 1,300 people come out last year. We have a 5K course, a two-mile course. There's lots to do for the kids. We have a kids' run. Connecticut Princess Parties is coming with some Disney princesses and superheroes. We have a raffle. Uh, there's just a lot to see, a lot to do, a lot of people to, to meet and talk to. So it's a, it's a great celebration of life. Uh, what time is it? Starts early, so registration opens at eight, and then okay. the run itself starts at ten. It's a timed run, so if you want to come out and beat your personal best for a five k, um, you can, you definitely can. And we have some food, some food trucks. Um, come have coffee with us. It's a really nice day. Well, when you go out to sign people up, what's the biggest question everybody has? You know, um, the biggest thing that holds people back still is this fear that they're going to be injured, um, critically injured, um, or critically ill, and be taken to a hospital, and that the hospital is not going to give them great care because they check their license and see that they're a registered donor. And you're probably one of the best people to to take that myth on. <laughs> well, I, I had somebody, I was on another station being interviewed and, and, and was discussing this, and the host actually asked me that question. Oh, boy. And yeah. so so it it's out there. And I can tell you, as someone who provides care to people, mm-hmm. we don't know who a donor is and who they aren't. Yep. And really don't care. I mean, right. we do everything we possibly can. And in fact, if you're a donor, I might take the opposite approach because if that's the case that you're a potential donor, they're in the ICU a lot longer than other people who are terminal. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't realize it was – I thought it was just an oddity that he brought that up. Um, It's a big one, and we still hear it a lot, and I don't know if it's something – people are seeing it on TV, a storyline. But I tell you, so, for example, my mom, um, she's a lovely lady. She received a liver transplant 12 years ago, and she was 49 years old when she needed that transplant. Now, she – was a hard, she hard worker. She had two pretty grown children, um, but she had seen a lot. I mean, she was 49, not that that's old, but her donor was an 18-year-old in a motorcycle accident. Um, he was killed just a couple miles from his home, and he was taken to the hospital. And I just cannot see in any scenario how anyone could have looked at those situations and said, let's let the 49-year-old uh Let's let the let's let the 18-year-old die for his organs to save the 49-year-old. It just doesn't it doesn't work that way. Um, every effort was made to save her donor's life. Um, he was young, he was healthy, but he had sustained a horrible injury, um, a, a horrible head injury in this motorcycle accident. So nothing could be done um, to save his life. And he was a registered donor, and he went on to save a life, save my mom's life. So it, it it really is a huge myth, and it just, like you're saying, it doesn't 
impact care at all. No one in the hospital knows whether or not someone's a registered donor. Uh, a pet peeve of mine, and mm-hmm. I don't know how flagrant this is, but when someone receives an organ, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily obliged to become an organ donor themselves upon their death, correct? Um, no, but you're right they, that they don't have to be registered. But how often does that ever happen? Because someone this, brought this up to me, and that's yeah. why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that everyone who is on the list to receive would also want to be registered to give. Um, and then as far as whether or not they can or can't give, that really depends on the situation. But being a transplant recipient does not mean that you can't register. Okay. Okay. So so even people who receive organs can sign up, and and I would think most do. Uh, I guess. I hope so, okay. and I hope their families do. But I even think about um, people. So my mom, that was like one of her first questions after she got her transplant. Well, can I still be a donor? We've all been donors forever because it's right. the right thing to do. And her doc talked to her about, well, maybe you wouldn't be able to donate your liver um, if it's not healthy enough, but you could donate your corneas or skin or bone and go on to help so many people. We had this conversation. My dad's 91 years old. Mm-hmm. He is an organ donor, has been an organ donor, and asked me, he said, can I still be an organ donor? I said, absolutely. No, but the, the, first of all, we're not making medical decisions here yeah. about who could be a donor or not. So everyone who's listening can become a donor, and you should do that. The reason absolutely. you do that is because you're going to feel better after mm-hmm. you do that. You're going to feel better. Everybody wants to memorialize their lives in some way. People build statues. Uh, we buy headstones, elaborate mm-hmm. headstones. Can you think of some way that's even better to memorialize your entire life but by giving an organ to someone else who goes on and lives? There's just no way to do it. So it's, it, oh, right. it's great. So people, again, how do they sign up for next week? How do people get involved in Life Choice? So very easy to sign up for the Blue and Green 5K. Just go online to bluegreenwalk.org. Our early registration does end tomorrow, but that does not mean you can't just show up. Um, we do on-site registration next Saturday, the 29th, starting at 8 a.m., um, but all those details are on that bluegreenwalk.org. And then anyone that's interested in um, just getting some more information about registering as a donor can give me a call anytime. Um, check out registryme.org. Uh, and I, I'll throw out my number out there if anyone has questions. It's um, 475-279-7938. And, and another great thing, if you want to volunteer to go out and help educate people, if you're as passionate about this topic as I am, you can also contact uh, Caitlin over at Life Choice and, and put some time into helping to educate others, especially when you're sitting with your family. It's, it's not this moribund topic. You need to bring it up and need to talk about it. Absolutely true. Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you and everybody over at Life Choice for everything they do for our community. Oh, well, thanks for having me and thanks for everything you do to support this great cause. Thank you. All right, take care. Uh, that was Caitlin Bernabucci from Life Choice. Get out there and do it. I mean, this is just so important um, for everyone uh, to really be familiar with. Many thanks to our studio producer today, Mike Olko's on the board. Uh, Jeff Chandler and Sadie Bride are in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, I will not be at the walk, but my daughter will. She's going to go out and run the 5K. I will be here with you. 
Uh, but I will also be here with Dr. Stephen Scarangella, who is a hand surgeon. He's an orthopedic hand specialist. We're going to be talking about injuries to the hand, treatments for those. Next up on WTI's Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor by going to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.